0: This is week three of Hyperallergic's special coronavirus series that reflects on the week that was and how it's impacting the art community. At the beginning, you got a taste of Rona by Kikilis Nage, which is the latest song to riff off what's starting to feel like a new reality marked by quarantines, masks, and frequent hand-washing. I'm Hrag the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. And I'm joined by our news editor, Jasmine Weber, in Los Angeles, and reporters Valentina Delicia in Miami and Hakeem Bashara here in Brooklyn. Jasmine's going to kick things off.
1: So, the first thing that I'll start off with um, as the COVID 19 pandemic ravages global healthcare systems and economies, President Trump signed on March 27th a controversial $2 trillion stimulus bill called the Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security Act, also known as the CARES Act. It's the U.S. federal government's first attempt to alleviate some of the economic struggle. It's been criticized pretty heavily for not doing enough to alleviate the hard work being done by healthcare workers who are not being given access to supplies, who are being severely overworked and who are really at the front lines of this pandemic in terms of its implication on the art world which is being really devastated because of closures postponements its allocation for the arts in comparison is pretty small the cares act allocated a combined 50 billion dollars in grants and loans for passenger airlines one of its more controversial and simultaneously lauded Initiatives is $1,200 checks to eligible citizens. And in total, it's relief for arts and culture involved our respective $75 million for the National Endowment for the Arts and National Endowment for the Humanities, $50 million for the Institute of Museum and Library Sciences, and $25 million for the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts
0: numbers, Jasmine, if I could just jump in, is it's amazing that the Met and other institutions were advocating for $4 billion for museums, and it really does appear like none of that came to fruition.
1: You're right. We've seen in the past couple of weeks, the American Association of Museums and the American Association of Museum Directors were two of several organizations that were calling on Congress and Senate leaders to allocate $4 billion for the arts. And yeah, so the allocations that we saw came nothing close to that. The NEA and the NEH are expected to send 40% of this funding that they're going to be receiving to state art agencies and regional art organizations. And another 60% will go to direct grants for organizations.
0: Yeah, but as you and I both know, though, that that's still so little money. I mean, we're talking about practically a million, two million dollars per state, if that. I mean, this isn't really a lot of money.
1: Compared to the $30 million estimated loss that museums across the U.S. are funneling out every single day that they're closed, it, it's just about nothing. And it will really only help on a very small yeah. scale. The AAM is expecting that about 30% of museums will not be able to reopen after the pandemic. And the $75 million for each of these organizations will is really not enough to prevent that from happening
0: that's a great point. One of the things that really amazes me about all this is it makes me wonder whether we have a really good arts advocacy, you know, in this country in general because it's really, you know, I mean, I'm sure a lot of you saw and we talked about it in the office, Nikki Haley, after that funding for the NEA and uh, NIH came out, it was amazing to me that she was tweeting something to the effect of, well, you know, think of how many people could have been helped by these funds as if the arts helps no one and is not an essential part of our society. It blew my mind. What what do you think, Jasmine?
1: So, I think that the ironic thing about that, uh, that claim that this money going to the arts should be going straight to people is the fact that Art museums across the country, and that's only museums, that doesn't count any of the other arts organizations that are employing people, nonprofit arts museums employ over 700,000 people across the country. So the funds that are going towards the arts, as long as they're being spent properly, will be going to people's paychecks to make sure that they can maintain their livelihoods.
0: I mean, I'm just going to read the people who didn't hear it. It says, Nikki Haley wrote, these are the items included in the stimulus bill, 75 million for public television radio, 25 million for Kennedy Center, 75 million for the National Endowment for the Arts, 75 million for the National Endowment for the Humanities. How many more people could have been helped with this money? And she tweeted this in March 26. And you know, in a $2 trillion whatever this bill is, I mean, to, to really nitpick, essentially, less than $200 million, this way blows me away. Hakeem, what do you think?
2: I think beyond that, there's a great misconception among the general public that the art world is rich, that it's all rich institutions and, and rich, big artists, and they're all stars, and they're all trading with those uh, expensive artworks, while in fact, in reality, the great, great majority of artists and art institutions are now broke, and they're very much low on money. So yeah, I think that's I mean, another
0: obstacle. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think, I think unfortunately, the PR of some of the luxury part of the art world has unfortunately worked. And people have this perception of the art world is flush with money, with all these billionaires and millionaires walking around, not realizing that's really just a PR story that doesn't really reflect the majority of our community. Valentina, what are you seeing? Mm-hmm. Why do you think this perception exists?
3: Well, I think it's interesting. I think that there's also so much diversity in the art world and and diversity in terms of income levels and wealth. And yeah, I I echo Hakim's sentiments. I mean, you have a museum like MoMA with uh, an endowment that stands, I believe at a little bit over a billion that we just learned has terminated its freelance museum educator contracts. And so there are glaring discrepancies, I think, in the amount of wealth in certain institutions in the art world and how they're used to what ends they're used. And there's certainly tiny nonprofits with very, very small endowments or no endowments at all. And so addressing and accepting the the differences and the diversity of this ecosystem that we're in is important to, to understanding how we need to support it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, nothing makes me angrier, I think, than realizing that SF MoMA is furloughing all these em- full-time employees and others while they just right. built, you know, a few years ago, a you know, $300 million building, added $100 million to their endowment. And it makes me really wonder, how are these museums not only being managed, but Are they not planning for anything, you know, and then what's the use of their super wealthy board members who don't, don't seem to provide any cushion. I mean, here at Hyperallergic, we thankfully haven't laid off anybody, but, you know, we're a small institution with very little, you know, resources, certainly a lot less than SF MoMA. And I can't believe that they have already announced these kinds of things Mm -hmm. without, without even like, I don't know, waiting a while, see how things play out, figuring out how things Mm -hmm. happen. It blows my mind.
2: I think the key word is board, which you just mentioned, Harak because, I mean, they're really handling their business like corporates do. You answer to the board and the board members are acting like shareholders. And what shareholders want is to maximize profit. And um, if that means laying off a lot of workers in time of distress, then they'll do that.
0: Such a good point. They're bringing a very corporate mentality to the institutions. Valentina, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I was just going to add that I think one question we all want answered here is, why don't you pull from your endowment? There's this sense that the wealth of some of these institutions doesn't match some of the decisions that they're making. And I think we've heard very little, and anybody can correct me if I'm wrong, but we've heard very little from top museum leadership about what the reasons are for not wanting to dip into an endowment During what is an unprecedented crisis, you know, I'm not saying pull from your endowment all the time. I understand that it's a safeguard, but but why not now? I think we need more voices speaking up.
0: It also tells you what some of these wealthy people are willing to give towards, and other things they're not. I bring up SF MoMA just because I think they're one of the most egregious examples, because if many of you may know, the Fisher collection that's on display in the building, and that was part of the opening of the museum, that collection's only being loaned to the museum for 100 years. It's not, it, has, it hasn't been donated. So in that case, we even have an institution that is literally storing and displaying someone's private collection. And in, in times of crisis, they decide to lay off all these people. You know, it just something's not sitting well with me. That's that's for right. sure. Um, so, Valentina, I wanted to ask you about one of the big stories you reported this last week was on art schools and how they're being impacted and their responses to the coronavirus crisis. Could you give us a little summary of what's happening?
3: Yeah. So the article I worked on focuses on different facets of universities' responses to the coronavirus. And we've focused on a number of private art programs across the country, of course, because we're hyperallergic and our our specialty is art, but also because some of these art students are making arguments about why virtual learning really is not appropriate for a material-based practice. So what I started to see was letters written by students, some also co-authored by faculty, supporting these students, requesting all sorts of different forms of relief for the remainder of the semester or the quarter for those around the quarter system. Things like partial reimbursements for tuitions, things like different forms of aid, because the students are saying, well, you can't very well charge us the same amount that you've been charging us when we don't have access to these highly specialized facilities. That is the reason we were willing to maybe even go into debt to come to this school. And that includes things that I hadn't even thought of, like you know, sewing machines and dark rooms and specialized ventilation for those that work with chemicals and different kinds of paints and pigments. I mean, really the kind of equipment and facilities that some of these schools offer are quite impressive and the students are making very specific arguments that they can't get the same level of education that they've been getting online. We've also seen students asking for better handling of the situation in general, pointing out that some campuses could have been evacuated earlier. And then, of course, we have institutions, for example, RISD was very much highlighted in the article. We have institutions that have said, well, you know, we have actually done a lot. And and rightly so. RISD has pointed out that it was one of the first schools to evacuate its Rome campus in Italy, which was, as we all know, an epicenter, a severe, severe epicenter of the outbreak. But still, you know, it's students are saying, well, you know, that may not have been enough. And, and they're really demanding accountability from their universities. I have heard a range of stories. Could go on forever. That's,
0: yeah. So what are some of the fr- specific frustrations students shared with you that maybe didn't make it into the article? Is there anything that you'd like to share?
3: Yeah. So, you know, for example, at Yale School of Arts, there's a petition going around that specifically, I think, really really highlights the tuition issue, but it also asks for other things like, for example, job security for all their adjunct faculty. They're asking for an extension of health coverage. That's a really big thing. Then at the very last minute, I heard from a student at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago that said, I I know you're working on the story. I want you to know that we're also organizing to ask our school for some form of relief. And what they were asking for was you know, maybe the idea of not continuing with the semester and then being able to pick the semester back up, but having the university offer them financial support to remain in Chicago, which is a very expensive city. So, I mean, the the kind of solutions these students are positing are really creative. They were asking the university, can you pay for transport for an extended amount of time? Can you open up financial aid? Can you open up some aid to international students, which normally do not uh, receive U.S. financial aid? So I think what this situation is teaching us is the university's responses to a pandemic are not necessarily all consistent, and they're really kind of exposing all these points of the U.S. university system, especially the high costs and how difficult it is for some students, what really a sacrifice it is for some students to attend these schools.
0: Such a great point. It really is. And I mean, I think, particularly at some of the very expensive schools, people are kind of scratching their head trying to figure out what's going to happen. And, you know, and I just feel really bad for those in their senior year who now are going to have to end their studies in this kind of, I don't even know what to call it. I mean, it's sort of a bit of a letdown, right? Where everybody isn't you know, in the same room, they're not gonna be able to celebrate, not not gonna be able to have those festivities. Obviously something more important is going on, but I do feel for those students that have been looking forward to this for so long. I mean, Absolutely. It's kind of unbelievable. And,
3: you know, I heard from a student at NYU Tisch um, in their film program that had already started working on her thesis film. And that means a lot of additional costs for that student, you know, locations that had been rented out, equipment, things, some of which the, student, the university provides, some of which it does not. So we're also thinking about more specifically those senior year students, what expenses have they already had to undertake that now are kind of lost? And, and how will those universities help those students?
0: Yeah, great point. Now, Jasmine, do you want to get us up to speed about the probably the most adorable story from the last week, though? I I mean, I think it's, you know, I think we could like pick it apart and come up with some issues with it. But the story of Tim at the Cowboy Museum in Oklahoma. I'm wondering if you want to sort of like explain to people what went on there and why why he sort of captured the hearts of so many people on the internet.
1: Yeah, so Tim is probably one of the the best things to come out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, (laughs) Our Southwest editor, Ellie Duke, wrote about this security guard at the National Cowboy Museum in Oklahoma City. And Tim is a man who really sums up the learning curve that some older people have who aren't familiar with social media. So we get to see him in real time, learn how to use Twitter. Um, He's very sweet. And I mean, currently talk the about the hashtags, person.
0: please talk about the <laughs> yeah. hashtags. I mean, those yeah. are just so special.
1: So he's super sweet. He's currently the only person staffing the museum. And so they asked him while he's there guarding it to kind of take over their Twitter. And so he has been getting advice from his grandson, Lucas, who asked him to use hashtags to help promote uh the museum and tim has certainly not gotten the hang of it in one instance he tweeted out twitter tips please and then followed up with sorry thought i was googling that thanks tim which is his signature sign off every tweet that he makes he (laughs) finishes it off with thanks tim Um, i love that um, he thinks that they're
0: postcards i think i think that's what he thinks There, he's sending postcards into the world
1: yeah. So his, his version of a hashtag, rather than the pound sign, he started off with writing out the word hashtag. Um, now he has evolved to pound sign, hashtag, insert phrase. So one of my favorite tweets, thanks for all the tips, friends. Realize I've been doing the hashtags wrong. I need to use the pound sign from the phone. I'm learning. Here's his costume, John Wayne's costume, from True Grit from 1969, courtesy of John Wayne Enterprises. Pound sign, hashtag John Wayne. Thanks, Tim. And Uh the internet has really gone crazy for this this man. The National Cowboy Museum is at over 270,000 followers compared to just a few thousand before this whole ordeal. They're now selling shirts. And he's essentially become a national icon. And... I can't, I've never met someone who wasn't totally enthralled by these tweets. And one thing that actually this story brings to mind is the fact that the National Cowboy Museum does in fact have a security guard staffing the museum. Meanwhile, in the Netherlands... At a museum right outside of Amsterdam, a Van Gogh painting was stolen in the dead of night on March 30th, which happens to be Van Gogh's birthday. They made off with the Parsonage Garden at Nuren in spring, um, an 1884 oil painting on paper. And it really calls into question what sort, of, what sort of theft might be possible with museums across the world closed because of the pandemic. I'm sure that a lot of burglars are taking this as prime opportunity where these museums are not as well-staffed with security. And it was yeah, one I mean, of the more Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good stories. point.
0: But I also think it's very funny how symbolic the date they chose was. Yeah. Which, which only goes to show that thieves love symbolism too, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so now, Hakim, I wanted to ask you about one story you wrote about is the art world rallies to gather medical supplies for COVID-19 healthcare workers. Do you want to give us a sense of what the art world exactly is doing?
2: Because of the shortages in masks and protective gear, artists are uh, stepping up to help medical workers. You have uh, a group called Mask Crusaders PPE. PPE stands for Personal Protective Equipment that's gathering medical equipment and protective gear from art institutions that have masks and, and eye covers and so on. They collect those. They have volunteers distributing that equipment in New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, and other cities. And you have personal initiatives like um, artist Amy Wilson's very ornate and uh, beautiful masks that you can buy almost for free on her website and several other initiatives trying to help medical workers these days.
0: Yeah. And I think adding to that last week, we talked about the Whitney staff also donating their masks. It's really heartening to see that. And I did want to mention here at Hyperallergic, we're also greatly impacted by the coronavirus. Um, Today, we just launched our big membership program, which we were hoping to roll out in the summer, but clearly with circumstances the way they are, we expedited that. And today it's officially, or this week, I should say, it's officially up. So people can visit hyperallergic.com backslash membership to get more information. Because one of the things this crisis taught us was you know, as great as advertising has been for us, one of the real drawbacks is during this time of crisis, of course, is the fact that uh, advertising has a way of disappearing because people are holding on to their dollars. So the membership program, we hope, is going to help us just allow us to continue reporting unhindered during this times of crisis when our reporting is often the needed the most. So just let you know, hyperallergic.com backslash membership. I hope you'll consider sharing that and joining us so that we can uh, continue bringing you the stories you want. So, uh, Hakim, anything to add about that story or anything about some of the different kinds of reporting you've been doing this last week that you think people want to know about?
2: Yeah, one big issue in the community is rent. Rent is due today, and many, many small galleries, and mid-sized galleries in New York, are struggling to pay it. And there's no relief on that front, really. There is a uh, bill in the New York Senate offering a sweeping rent forgiveness, but it's not moving. There's not even uh, a voting date for this. So most galleries are going to have to swallow this bill, but what happens next month? We know we have another month of quarantine. So that's a big issue in the community.
0: That's great. And you know what? Just uh, We're going to play a little clip of Mario Cuomo's press conference this week where he did touch on that just briefly. We have said that no one can get evicted for non-payment of rent. And that, to me, is the fundamental answer, right? That solves all of the above. Uh, you can't pay the rent. A lot of people can't pay the rent. They're not working. There's no income. I can't pay the rent. Landlord. Landlord technically, legally had a right to say, okay, you're evicted, Uh, we said, I said, by executive order, there can be no evictions, period. If you pay the security deposit, you don't pay the security deposit, you pay part of the rent, none of the rent, you can't be evicted uh, for three months, period. They want to pay, they can pay. So in terms of rent, I think this is going to be a huge, huge issue because as we learned from your article about a week and a half ago, a lot of smaller galleries don't actually pay their employees as employees, but often as contractors. And I think that's unfortunately super common in this field. And I bet you artists and their artist assistants have the same dilemma and the same issue. And I know it's something that we've talked about in relation to taxes in a previous podcast, how most artist assistants are paid as contractors. And you know, you got to wonder if that's actually uh, legally a good idea. But it also means that they're not going to be able to take advantage of some of the small artists' grants that are available as a result of the stimulus bill.
2: That's true. That's one thing. And also proving, uh, you're required to prove that you lost uh, 25% of your income because of the pandemic. And that's also hard to prove because Galleries work with invoices, irregular income, and uh, promised income in most cases. It's always
0: feast or famine in the art world, it feels like. And I think we're unfortunately going through a famine phase. Now, Jasmine, you've been listening to some of the music that's been being put out during the last week. We talked about some of the tunes we'd been hearing, but anything new of note?
1: So, while the New York Philharmonic isolates at home, they've actually launched a series called We Are New York Phil at Home, um, where they're publishing on their YouTube different members playing really beautiful compositions. One of the most recent was their cellist playing box suite number one for unaccompanied cello in G major. It's a super familiar song that we've heard so many times before that really takes on a new meaning as you hear. These accomplished musicians playing it from home and the video is edited together so that they can play together despite being apart and so we're going to play a clip for you of those philharmonic cellists here <laughs> undoubtedly one of the most famous cellists in the world and he's asking his fellow musicians to post songs of comfort online. He partnered with the PBS NewsHour to broadcast our performances on Skype and you can hear one of those compositions right now. Activist and singer-songwriter Joan Baez, known for her protest songs, sang a rendition of John Prine's Hello in there after Prine was hospitalized for coronavirus.
2: had an apartment in the city. Me and Loretta like living there.
0: It's been years since the kids. I was talking to Lise Ragbeer, who is a curator based in Austin at the Black Galleries at UT Austin, and I was asking her what she's sort of seeing around and what some of the concerns she had. And one of the things she told me that maybe is is, is giving me some food for thought is she's liking this idea of the museum from home, but she's also wondering whether it's a band-aid for the privilege. And she's really wondering why no one seemed to care about creating access like this when, you know, when black and brown people weren't walking through the museum doors. And then she also was talking to me about the fact that how this pandemic is forcing questions or light on questions about access. but. She's really concerned how we're not going to slip back into the not caring quite this way after this pandemic is over. Now, does anyone have any thoughts about that? Like, I guess the suggestion is that it was a lot of lip service. And now that they're finally doing it, it demonstrates they could have done this a lot quicker. But for some reason, they didn't. Anyone have any thoughts?
3: So yeah, Hrag, I think that's a really great point. And sadly, I think it's probably true. I feel like in the same way that this pandemic is exposing um, wealth discrepancies and access discrepancies in other sectors, like for example, my friend was telling me that her mom works for a fancy health insurance company, and she was able to get coronavirus tests immediately and you know, an x-ray of her lungs and she felt very kind of elite and a little bit embarrassed and ashamed. And I think it's probably true that now museums, galleries, they're launching all of these virtual resources that, that weren't there before um, because they're patrons and because collectors and because board members want to see those and and perhaps less so for the larger community. I think what I, what I would love to see is maybe in a couple months or maybe sooner, some data about who is accessing these virtual platforms, this content. I'd love to see whether the attendance ship, quote unquote, of museums has changed, whether more diverse people are, quote unquote, again, going to museums online. I would just love to see the data on that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I would love to see that data too. My, my concern, of course, would be that they won't reveal it unless it benefits them. Mm. <laughs> so that might be reality. Yeah. Hakeem? I doubt
2: if it's real access though. Nothing can replace standing in front of a work of art and really experiencing it. And uh, it's also very precarious. It's all online. What if the internet falls because everyone is uh, Netflixing, right? And um, who has uh, time and luxury to go and browse through museum websites? And when it comes to galleries, it's uh, mainly something to, uh, to serve the secondary market and their sales. So I don't think this is bringing any uh, change of attitude towards the issue of access.
0: Well, I think Mm -hmm. that's also a good point that you bring up is the fact that we're seeing a lot of class divisions exasperated by this because, you know, I mean, who's still delivering the food, who's still picking up stuff, who still has to use the subway every day in New York, you know, who's actually has the leisure of sitting down and watching all this stuff and not working, you know, it's clearly a certain class, it does make obvious what we already knew was who museums actually serve, um, you know, or who they pretend to serve and who they actually serve. And I think that's kind of unfortunate, but I do hope it's, you know, it is going to lead to more. And it is interesting which museums are not doing any of these access things. It's not like every museum has done it. So that's, I think, also notable. It makes me wonder who's doing it and who hasn't and why. Jasmine, what do you think?
1: I think that lease is completely correct that the way that museums were able to mobilize so quickly to get their programs online and galleries as well. So many of these institutions that are that we would consider elite who gatekeep the, the artworks and the content that they put out um, were very quick to put it online, much of it for free. Organizations like the Met have for a long time had a number of online books and resources for free, similar with the Getty. But I do think that she's right, that we should all be thinking about the, the newfound access that these art institutions are allowing the public and demanding that they maintain that same level of transparency. And even if it's not access in the same way that we would want it to be, such as seeing a work face to face, these institutions should definitely be accountable to make their content more accessible to a wider audience. They should also understand that people experience art in different ways. Not everyone is able to go out and go to a museum for a number of hours. Not everyone is based in a location that has a museum that has a great collection. And so they should really be thinking about that.
0: Yeah, and I'll just add, Lise, I mean, she was really great talking uh, through this issue. Because one thing she brought up was... A lot of this, quote unquote, free access also brings up a lot of questions around gatekeepers too, because these curated video streams, virtual limited access, I mean, they're still being decided by gatekeepers. So it's interesting to see what is available and what is still not available. So that's something that I think this issue is also brought up. I'm going to thank you, Jasmine, yeah. Valentina and Hakeem for joining us.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be
1: Thank, thank you. you.
0: Thanks to Kikulis Nage for letting us use his track, Rona. I'm Hrag Bartanyan, co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and stay safe.
2: You and me don't gotta be six feet apart Cause you got my heart And if someone's gonna give it to me I want you to give it to me
0: But, but, but.